One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode features discussion of child abuse, sexual trauma, suicide, and extreme violence that some people may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. Sunday, February 28, 1993. A hostage negotiator picked up the phone to a panicked voice on the other end. The negotiator calmly asked who he was speaking with. The voice that came through was muffled, like he was having trouble breathing. The negotiator tried to calm him, to set up a rapport, but the voice cut him off. He was seething as he yelled, there's a bunch of us dead, and there's a bunch of you guys dead, and that's your fault. It was the beginning of a 51-day siege that would rock the city of Waco, ignite the far right, and change the way the FBI handed hostage situations forever. They were barely an hour in. Again, the negotiator asked with whom he was speaking. Finally, the voice calmed down. David Koresh, he clarified before adding, the notorious. This is Hostage, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we tell the stories behind the most captivating hostage situations and the people inside them. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Irma Blanco. We'll also cover the psychological tactics used in hostage negotiations and what the human brain does when held captive. This week, we're joined by two special guests, Greg and Vanessa, who host ParCast's show, Cults. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for having us. We're excited to look more deeply into the Branch Davidians and their conniving leader, David Koresh. We are so fascinated by this hostage negotiation and how it interplayed with cult psychology. Us too. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. This is our final episode on the standoff between American law enforcement agencies and cult leader David Koresh. Last week, we met charismatic cult leader David Koresh and his followers, the Branch Davidians, or the Students of the Seven Seals. We also followed ATF agents Davy Aguilera, Robert Rodriguez, and Bill Buford, who were responsible for planning the raid on the cult's compound after learning that the Branch Davidians had been stockpiling illegal firearms and explosives. 
On February 28, 1993, the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms attempted the raid. It failed miserably and collapsed into a two-and-a-half-hour shootout that left 10 dead. When the dust settled, more than 100 Branch Davidians, including over 40 children, were left holed up inside Mount Carmel, the cult's compound just outside of Waco, Texas. It was the beginning of a nightmare scenario, as the ATF realized the Branch Davidians had enough supplies to withstand eight months under siege. This week, we'll follow the negotiations between the FBI and Koresh over the course of a 51-day siege, including the explosive ending that was captured live on national television. It was the afternoon of February 28, 1993, the women and children of Mount Carmel got to their feet, brushing dust and debris from their clothes. They had spent over two hours huddled together, listening to the thunder of gunfire as it rattled the walls of their compound. The silence that followed felt just as deafening. The women took stock of who was missing as their children traced small fingers over bullet holes in the bed frames. Some of the men they loved, their fathers, brothers, former husbands, were missing. Some lay dead, but they didn't know it yet. Their Messiah lay in a second-floor hallway, bleeding from his left side, not unlike the Son of God he claimed to be. A bullet had seemingly grazed his hip bone. Outside, ATF agents limped away, shaken and gray-faced in the wake of the battle. The shell-shocked Branch Davidians watched from their ivory tower before slowly turning to regroup and count their dead. The first body to be found was that of Peter Gent, who had been taken out by either a sniper or a helicopter when he'd looked out from an empty water tower near the main building. Next was Winston Blake a Branch Davidian from the Caribbean, who was found near the building's destroyed water tank. His David Koresh slash God Rocks t-shirt soaked in water and blood. To this day, the Branch Davidians and federal authorities argue over whose bullets killed him. Jadine Wendell, a former police officer turned Branch Davidian, had just finished breastfeeding her 10-month-old son when she took up a firing position on a bunk bed opposite a second-floor window. Her children were hiding just below her. At some point during the past two hours, she slumped over and stopped shooting. As the other mothers pulled her children out of the room, eight-year-old Johnessa Wendell saw the outline of her mother's body beneath a blanket. Jadine had been struck in the head. Peter Hipsman was found writhing on the floor of David's bedroom on the fourth floor of the building. He begged David and his lieutenant, Steve Schneider, to kill him. After examining the severity of his wound, they agreed. Neil Vega, a Branch Davidian with an iron stomach, was called in to shoot Peter in the head. Neil also purportedly ended the life of Koresh's father-in-law, Perry Jones, out of mercy, although whispers of suicide echoed down the halls of Mount Carmel in the days following. Perry had given his life to Koresh, his son-in-law and prophet. He had followed Koresh into the wilderness, helped him reclaim Mount Carmel twice, and had given Koresh his daughter's hand in marriage when she was only 14. If he did die of suicide, Koresh would be keen to cover it up. One of his most ardent believers would die nothing less than a martyr. Whatever happened, 
the state's autopsy confirms he died of a point-blank shot through his mouth. In the wake of the shootout, Koresh, who had been grazed through the hip by a bullet, himself refused medical attention offered by the hostage negotiators. At first, his health seemed to deteriorate rapidly, and his followers gathered round, prepared for the worst. David Thibodeau, a Branch Davidian who was inside Mount Carmel during the siege, wrote, If David died, we all died, in spirit and maybe in the flesh, fighting to the end. Never want to miss an opportunity for theatrics. Koresh seemed to recover within the hour. He asked for his guitar, saying, They don't kill me that easy. Word of Koresh's possible demise spread quickly around the compound, and with each retelling, the story grew more heroic. David, the son of God, had protected them and seen them through the gunfight. He said he was mortally wounded, yet he showed no early signs of death. Surely God was protecting them. Any doubt among the followers was quickly squelched. They were martyrs, and God was on their side. As faith within the compound renewed, the hostage negotiators posted outside began to tackle their greatest challenge. They realized the true enemy wasn't a rogue prophet. It was blind faith. The Branch Davidians would die for their beliefs, and to them, the siege only served as further proof that the breaking of the seals had already begun. When all seven seals were broken, the apocalypse would commence with the Branch Davidians taking their rightful place as heirs to the kingdom of heaven. Biblical scholars James Tabor and Philip Arnold, who worked directly with the Branch Davidians during the siege, understood that the group felt they had begun to live through the events described in Revelation 6, 9 through 11, the description of the fifth seal. I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were. The Branch Davidians believed they were meant to suffer through a round of bloodshed, wait a little season, and then perish. At this point, surrender wouldn't just mean abandoning Koresh. It also meant abandoning the biblical prophecy. About an hour after the ceasefire, around 1.30 p.m., the Branch Davidians once again took cover. They could hear helicopters overhead, but this time it wasn't the ATF or FBI. It was the news, trying to get establishing shots of the remote compound for their breaking reports. Even before the raid began, the local media had been tipped off and swarmed the Mount Carmel compound. In the hours that followed, footage of wounded ATF agents spread across the country and even got picked up internationally. It was the bloodiest siege in the history of the ATF, and it had played out on television. Waco had the world's attention, and the media was quick to keep the footage coming. News outlets began to interrupt the negotiation calls between the FBI and the Branch Davidians. They peppered the Branch Davidians with questions about who they were and what they wanted. For David Koresh, the media exposure was quite literally a godsend. It assured two things that were paramount to him. 
first, it prevented the FBI and ATF from mounting a surprise attack on Mount Carmel. Second, it afforded him an incredible amount of attention. Because the media was desperate to get him on the phone, he was able to control the narrative coming out of Mount Carmel. He had already convinced his followers they were being martyred by an evil authoritarian force. Now he could convince the entire country. But his first foray into manipulating law enforcement wasn't a knockout success. Koresh made contact with Lieutenant Lynch and ATF negotiator Special Agent Jim Cavanaugh and told them a toddler had been hit during the skirmish. It was a ploy for national sympathy. But he was surprised when the negotiators quickly offered medical attention. Koresh pulled back, calling it a miscommunication. But now that communication had been established, Kavanaugh tried to push forward. He told Koresh that they needed to get the women and children out of the compound safely. He asked what could they do to show good faith towards the House of David. Koresh considered the offer. Finally, he told them that nobody was leaving Mount Carmel until his teachings were broadcast over the radio. It seemed like a low-impact and manageable request, so Kavanaugh asked him for a tape recording and Dallas radio station KRLD arranged for one of Koresh's shorter sermons to be broadcast three times between 4 and 5 p.m. Koresh agreed that after the broadcasts, he would begin to send the children out in pairs, like animals leaving the ark. But just before 5 p.m., gunfire echoed across the Mount Carmel property. Three of the Branch Davidians had been working in their auto shop away from the main compound when the initial raid began. Upon hearing about the raid, they ran back to Mount Carmel to help their fellow Branch Davidians. Finding the road to the compound had been blocked, they moved across the property on foot, finding small bits of cover when they could. But they ran up against the same problem the ATF had in planning their raid. There was a large field with no cover between them and the compound. What happened next is heavily disputed in regards to who shot first and why. But evidence shows that gunfire was exchanged on both sides, and a Branch Davidian named Michael Schroeder was fatally wounded. Those still inside Mount Carmel heard gunfire, but didn't know what it was. They knew the authorities had been slowly encroaching on the land around the compound, setting up a perimeter, but everyone who should have been inside the compound at the time was accounted for. They had no idea what the ATF might be shooting at. At 6.14 p.m., Koresh demanded that KRLD play the sermon again before he would release any hostages. The negotiators and radio station complied, broadcasting the tape again at 7.38 p.m. Then they waited. Around 9 p.m., six-year-old Angelica Sanobi and her three-year-old sister Crystal emerged from Mount Carmel. An hour after that, Renee Fagan, age six, and Nahara Fagan, age four, followed. While some Branch Davidians would later say that Koresh had always had their best interests at heart, it's important to note that Koresh began using the children as bargaining chips almost immediately. He had impressed upon his followers that the outside world, Babylon, was a place of evil, sin, and danger. Yet he was willing to send the youngest and most vulnerable members of his flock through Babylon's gates in exchange for airtime on a local radio station. Of course, Angelica, Crystal, Renee, and Nahara 
were his followers' children, not Koresh's. Since he hadn't fathered them, their safety clearly wasn't a priority. The scene outside Mount Carmel's walls mirrored the disarray within the compound. Unbeknownst to David Koresh, the ATF and FBI were still waiting for word as to who would be running point during the siege. It might seem odd that there would be a question of who would be in charge, but by late February of 1993, U.S. federal law enforcement was in a precarious state. Six months prior, on August 21, 1992, the United States Marshal Service had attempted to apprehend anti-government white separatist Randy Weaver at his home in Ruby Ridge, Idaho. He and his wife Vicki had been stockpiling weapons. The two sides exchanged gunfire, leaving Weaver's 14-year-old son Sammy and one U.S. Marshal dead. The FBI's hostage rescue team were called in to assist. Normally, the FBI has a set of standard rules of engagement, which indicate that deadly force should only be used in cases of self-defense and that verbal warnings should be given first, if at all possible. But since a federal agent had already been killed, the FBI team at Ruby Ridge ignored that. A sniper shot at Randy Weaver but missed, accidentally killing Vicki Weaver. Only after this incident were FBI hostage negotiators allowed to communicate with the Weaver family via bullhorn. But Weaver was incensed. It took 11 days before he agreed to leave the cabin on August 31st. Ruby Ridge sent shockwaves through the right-wing militias, confirming their fears that the U.S. government would enforce firearm regulations with deadly force. In fact, Koresh referred to Ruby Ridge regularly, wondering aloud, is it a dress rehearsal for an attack on Mount Carmel? Richard Rogers, the head of the FBI hostage rescue team, who had been in command at Ruby Ridge, was still in charge when the HRT was assigned to take over operations outside of Mount Carmel just six months later. And while many within U.S. law enforcement saw Rogers as the man who had successfully negotiated Ruby Ridge, FBI head negotiator Gary Nessner was less impressed. To him, Vicki Weaver had died needlessly because Rogers had come into Ruby Ridge believing that every adult in the Weaver cabin would kill his agents. To Nessner, Rogers hadn't deflated the situation. He'd exacerbated it. He had overreacted to the death of a U.S. Marshal and created an adversarial relationship with the hostages. Nestor worried that Rogers would bring the same callous force to this operation. He wouldn't be proven wrong. Nestor urged the FBI to pursue a nonviolent plan, like the one used during a siege on white nationalist group The Covenant, The Sword, and The Arm of the Lord, or CSA, in 1985. The authorities had formed a tight perimeter around the CSA compound in northern Arkansas. Then FBI negotiators convinced the CSA leader, Jim Ellison, that he would not win a firefight with government forces. The CSA allowed a U.S. attorney to enter the building and negotiate with them. The women and children inside were evacuated peacefully, and no blood was shed when the Arkansas State Police breached the compound and brought out the remaining men four days later. Nessner called this method trickle, flow, gush. Convince a few members of the group to leave the compound, then show the people inside that their comrades were safe. This would result in a flow of more people leaving for a better environment outside. Eventually, 
there would be a mass desertion of the leader still holed up inside the compound. Newly inaugurated President Clinton was the governor of Arkansas in 1985. He'd had a front row seat for the peaceful CSA negotiation. As such, he preferred Nessner's trickle-flow-gush method over Rogers' more aggressive tactics. Furthermore, FBI protocol demanded that the HRT and the hostage negotiators have equal say in decision-making. But Richard Rogers outranked Nessner, and he made it clear that he had no interest in handling Waco with anything but force. Nessner was worried. To him, Waco was no longer just a recovery effort. It was a test case for the FBI, forcing them to choose how the Bureau would deal with the growing threat of the far right. They would have to choose between peaceful, slow negotiation and bombastic cowboy heroics. There was very little administrative oversight, and neither side of the debate was interested in helping the other. Nestner worried that Rogers would set a deadly precedent that would result in many unnecessary deaths, not just in Waco, but in every siege following. Attorney General Janet Reno later commented that the Bureau, quote, didn't know what it had. The right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing. In the case of Waco, the two hands weren't just operating alone. One was intentionally breaking the other's fingers. In a moment, Nesner's worst fears are confirmed. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now back to the story. In early March 1993, Richard Rogers, the head of the FBI hostage rescue team, was put in charge of the siege outside Waco. Rogers had a reputation for using brute force to end conflict. And if dead federal agents were what made Richard Rogers see red, his vision as he stepped off the plane in Waco, Texas, was crimson. By the time Rogers arrived on the scene, Gary Nessner and his FBI hostage negotiation team had already taken over communications from ATF agent Kavanaugh, the man who had been negotiating with Koresh up to that point. When Rogers first arrived at the Mount Carmel compound, he recognized that the Branch Davidians had an extreme tactical advantage over the agents on the ground. Their compound was well fortified, and they had enough supplies to last inside the compound for months. 
They were well stocked with ammunition, and Rogers already knew that when it came to pure enthusiasm, the Branch Davidians weren't to be outdone. In short, they were in for the long haul. The first thing Rogers and his hostage rescue team did was develop an emergency assault plan in the event of a homicide or homicide-suicide within the compound. They were on high alert for a Jonestown situation. The plan was simple. They would use armored vehicles to breach the walls of the compound and provide exit routes. Then, the FBI would begin pumping tear gas into the building, which would flush the Branch Davidians outside. FBI negotiator Gary Nessner hoped they would never need to use this nuclear option. But he had reason to worry. In addition to Rogers' penchant for aggressive tactics, special agent in charge Jeffrey Jamar was asked to act as an intermediary between the FBI negotiators and the HRT. Nessner knew this was a mistake. Jamar had already caused communications issues between the FBI and ATF. Now he was the linchpin between the FBI negotiations team and the FBI hostage rescue team. Nestner worried that with Jamar in the mix, vital communication would be slowed and confused. He would be proven right again and again. But there was little Nestor could do. He braced himself and waited for the rest of his hostage negotiation team to arrive in Waco, namely supervisory senior resident Agent Byron Sage, a Vietnam Navy veteran who had been working for the FBI for over 20 years. Nessner and Sage worked well together and often saw eye to eye on communications tactics. They agreed that their first order of business would be establishing rapport with Koresh and his right-hand man, Steve Schneider. Byron Sage was a primary negotiator, and he was prepared to spend hours on the phone with David Koresh, Steve Schneider, or really anyone willing to talk. This was part of the trickle-flow-gush strategy. For it to work, Sage and Nessner needed to convince Koresh's followers to abandon their messiah. They needed to sow dissent among their ranks by proving themselves to be kinder and more rational than their leader. One way to do that was for Sage to make it clear to the Branch Davidians that he prioritized the safety of their children. And in fairness, this wasn't a lie. The children who had already been released by the Branch Davidians had been taken to a facility where they were being looked after and treated by a crisis team. But while showing the parents that their children were safe put the Davidians at ease, it only amped up the pressure outside to come to a speedy resolution. Early conversations with the Branch Davidian kids were showing that the trauma they had suffered at Mount Carmel was far more severe than the FBI or ATF had initially imagined. Child psychiatrist Dr. Bruce Perry discovered that the youngest Branch Davidians had felt unsafe for a long, long time. Renee and Nahara Fagan were the first children released from Mount Carmel. They were quickly followed by J. Dean Wendell's children and the son and stepchildren of Michael Schroeder. Then, two more children between the ages of 7 and 10 emerged, bringing the full count of hostages recovered to 14. As the children came out, they were walked to unmarked sedans and were driven through the gauntlet of media that had camped along the road. The FBI and the local aid workers worked to make sure this would be the last time the media saw the children. The kids had endured enough stress for a lifetime. They were housed at a temporary group home so they could be assessed and treated by a crisis team before potentially being returned to relatives outside the cult. 
Through the gentle but consistent use of play therapy, child psychiatrist Dr. Bruce Perry and his team grew to see that Koresh had frightened the children the same way he'd frightened their parents. But it was eight-year-old Janessa Wendell who gave Dr. Perry the most important information of all, though she didn't understand it at the time. In play therapy, it's common to ask the child to draw a picture or tell a story to help the interviewer understand what they're thinking and feeling. Janessa drew a picture of Mount Carmel wreathed in flames as a set of steps extended up to heaven. When Dr. Perry asked her what it meant, she only said, you'll find out. It was 4.45 p.m. on March 1st, the day after the ATF raid on Mount Carmel, in a little over 24 hours since Koresh's sermon had been played on KLRD radio. Children were being released from Mount Carmel compound every so often, as promised, and the FBI's command post was finally fully operational. But inside the compound, things weren't so rosy. At 5.50 p.m., Koresh and his right-hand man, Steve Schneider, realized that the phone lines had been cut. The only people they could talk to were the hostage negotiators. Enraged, Koresh warned negotiators that if the lines weren't immediately reopened, the government would be responsible for the deaths of the children inside. At the same time, the hostage rescue team began to move armored vehicles to close the perimeter around the compound. They had no idea that the negotiations team was on the phone with Koresh, who took the cut lines and moving vehicles as a dual threat. It was one of many miscommunications that would throw Koresh into a frenzy. He threatened violent retaliation, and it took negotiators several hours to calm him. Nestor and Sage finally appeased Koresh by asking him to record another sermon on the Seven Seals to be broadcast nationwide. In exchange, Koresh agreed to lead his followers out of the compound and surrender. It seemed too good to be true, and in fact, it was. Nessner went to special agent in charge, Jamar, with the news, but immediately tempered his expectations. There was no way Koresh was coming out that easy. Jamar bristled at the idea of giving Koresh something for nothing. But Nessner reminded him that the only thing Koresh wanted was for the FBI to go away. All they could offer him was media exposure. Jamar begrudgingly gave his approval. At 1.20 a.m. on March 2nd, Koresh released two more children, Natalie Nobrega and Joanne Vega, as an act of good faith. Then, around 8 a.m., four more Branch Davidians emerged from the compound, 75-year-old Margaret Lawson, 77-year-old Catherine Madison, and six- and seven-year-old Daniel and Kimberly Martin. Catherine handed the FBI a tape. The tape included a 57-minute rant about the Seven Seals, but Koresh failed to mention that he would surrender as soon as the tape was aired. Already on thin ice with Jamar regarding Koresh's previous waffling, Nesner and Sage asked Koresh to record his promise over the phone. Koresh agreed. The FBI gave the sermon to a group of theologians at nearby Baylor University to make sure there weren't any hidden messages or potentially harmful implications to his words. The sermon checked out and was sent to the Christian Broadcasting Network with Koresh's promise to surrender spliced in. The Christian Broadcasting Network played Koresh's tape at 1.32 p.m. on March 2nd. 
The plan was for Koresh to be carried on on a stretcher while other small groups of his followers moved across the perimeter to board school buses to the FBI receiving facility. Steve Schneider was to remain on the phone with the negotiators throughout to avoid any hiccups or confusion. By 3 p.m., the vehicles were in place. The FBI stood in the compound's driveway in eager but nervous anticipation. Steve Schneider was optimistic at first, telling the hostage negotiators that it was just taking some time to get David down the stairs because of the pain he was in. The FBI waited again. No one came out. They called Schneider again. He assured the negotiators that David was coming, but he decided to conduct a final Bible study first. Agent Sage couldn't help but detect uncertainty in Schneider's voice. The FBI waited again. No one came out. They called again. At 5.59 p.m., Schneider told them, the Lord spoke to David. The Lord told David to wait, not to come out. FBI Special Agent Henry Garcia asked Schneider if he could speak to Koresh. Schneider answered, he's praying, he doesn't want to talk right now. The negotiation team was disappointed, but not necessarily surprised. But Rogers and Jamar were furious. Rogers said, this joker is screwing with us. It's time to teach him a lesson. My people can get in there and secure that place in 15 minutes. Nessner tried to keep everyone calm, but Jamar was running out of patience, and Rogers could be very convincing. At Rogers' behest, Jamar ordered the armored vehicles on the perimeter to advance onto the Branch Davidian property, which enraged the Branch Davidians. When Sage and Nessner's team next tried to engage with Schneider, he was beyond consoling. He screamed, you promised to stay off our land. Special Agent Garcia replied, but David promised to come out. It was a firm commitment, Steve. My bosses are angry and frustrated. Schneider, with a kind of earnest resignation, said, honestly, we were going to come out, but what could we do? God told David to wait. The next day, Steve Schneider would admit that he was personally embarrassed they hadn't been able to keep his promise. Nesner took the apology as an infinitesimal sign that Steve was cracking. Attempting to shake his faith in Koresh became a major goal for the FBI. They just needed to apply a little pressure. Unfortunately, they had an idea as to how they'd do it. When Koresh first announced that his followers' marriages were dissolved, Steve's wife, Judy, had been among the first women to gladly join Koresh's harem, which he called the House of David. It clearly hurt Steve, but he stayed devout. He told a former cult member that he'd given up Judy because of what they were going to accomplish in the kingdom. But the FBI hoped it might still be a sore issue that Schneider, who had a master's degree in religion, could be persuaded that Koresh used his followers' faith for his personal benefit, namely convincing Schneider's wife to leave him for Koresh. It might seem odd that a man with a master's degree in religion could fall prey to someone like David Koresh, but social psychologist Leon Festinger would beg to differ. His theory of cognitive dissonance refers to the psychological stress a person experiences when they attempt to hold two contradicting ideas or values in their heads. It's the driving force behind people who say one thing and do another, and typically results in the person experiencing the stress justifying their actions as exceptional. 
So while Schneider knew marriage is a sacred covenant in most religions, he considered David Koresh dissolving his marriage an exception and likely felt some stress trying to rationalize those two ideas. It didn't help that Koresh frequently mocked the men in the cult now that he had their wives. Nestor and Sage hoped that they could draw out jealousy, resentment, or even protectiveness from Steve Schneider. But his faith never wavered. In a moment, a fiery conclusion to a two-month-long siege. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. After the Branch Davidians' failed promise to emerge from their compound on March 2nd, 1993, the next few days passed without much development. Three more children were released between March 3rd and 5th, siblings Mark, Kevin, and Heather Jones. They would be the last of 21 children to leave the compound. On March 7th, the Branch Davidians requested a milk delivery for the children still inside. When the negotiators breached the idea of more children being released in exchange, David Koresh snapped, You are dealing with my biological children now. Nessner and Sage realized that Koresh had freed the children he didn't consider to be a part of the House of David, rather, the children he didn't care about. The FBI consulted with Dr. Park Dietz, a clinical professor of psychiatry and biobehavioral sciences at the UCLA School of Medicine, to assess Koresh's state of mind. Dietz predicted, Koresh would not come and would not surrender anyone of value to him unless and until he could be assured that his personal goals would be better fulfilled by surrender than by the alternatives. Dietz went on to describe Koresh's goals as one power, control, and domination of as many other people as possible, especially people who offer him sex, money, and skills to exploit. Two, promoting himself as a prophet by spreading the message of the seven seals as widely as possible. And three, avoiding imprisonment by justifying the February 28th shooting as a righteous defense of faith, family, and self. The negotiation team kept working on Koresh, Schneider, and some of the other Branch Davidians, but the internal tensions between the negotiators and the hostage rescue team deepened as the HRT viewed the negotiations as coddling. To Rogers, Nessner and Sage were enabling liars who had killed government agents. Sage would later find an anonymous message scrawled in one of the FBI's bathrooms. Sage is a Davidian. But the negotiators knew that Koresh was the type of person who responded to violence with violence. He was not going to be antagonized into giving up. 
They felt their greatest hope was to make the outside world, his evil Babylon, look appealing even to him. So on March 7th, the negotiators sent in a suture kit to treat the group's wounds. They included a videotape of each of the primary negotiators to help the people inside think of them as real, caring people. The team held up pictures to the camera and introduced the Branch Davidians to their families, saying they knew how important family was to them, too. Despite the negotiators' attempts to bond with the House of David, the FBI spokespeople were very public about their belief that Koresh was a conman and a sociopath. For instance, negotiations with Koresh often devolved into long late-night conversations about theology that the negotiators quietly called Bible babble. Koresh would often play games. Once, he told negotiators he would send out another child if they could accurately tell him the meaning of the third seal in the book of Revelation. The FBI knew this was likely a fruitless venture, but asked for theological help from the experts they'd consulted at Baylor University. They offered Koresh the most generally accepted interpretation of the third seal. Koresh told them they weren't even close. Koresh wasn't always offering religious diatribes. At one point, when negotiator John Cox told him he was having Whataburger for dinner, Koresh said, That meat is terrible. If it turns out that I am the Son of God, the world will find out about Whataburger. It was absurd. But it also suggested that Koresh wasn't necessarily the true believer he claimed to be. He frequently berated the FBI for their failure to accept him as the Lamb of God. Though he was more patient with Byron Sage, the negotiator still found himself having his faith as a Christian constantly questioned. Koresh didn't trust any of them, which left them at an impasse. On March 8th, the FBI took a tactic from one of the few effective pages in the Ruby Ridge playbook. They found someone Koresh liked and respected and asked him to mediate. McLennan County Sheriff Jack Harwell agreed to speak to Koresh. The two men had had a relatively good working relationship, as evidenced by Harwell's decision to tip the Branch Davidians off to what was supposed to be a surprise visit from the Texas Child Services. Koresh asked Harwell for the milk again, and though the FBI had already prepared to give it, even preparing listening devices to hide inside the bottles and packaging, they made it appear to be coming at Jack's behest. The milk was delivered at 3.50 p.m. A few hours later, the negotiators received a tape from Koresh with his legal wife, Rachel, and many of his biological children. Koresh picked up different children and repeatedly asked, Do you love David? The children agreed, eyes glazed. He went on to talk about how he wouldn't let anyone hurt his family and explained that he was doing all right despite his injuries. The team was glad to see the children. Nessner told Jamar it was a very good sign. But at 2.30 a.m. the next day, Jamar gave the order to cut power to the compound. The negotiators were at a loss when Steve Schneider asked them how they were supposed to keep the milk cold with no electricity. Nessner felt Jamar and Rogers were working against the negotiators, antagonizing the Branch Davidians, and making strategic decisions without warning the negotiation team, making them look like liars. Nessner had to argue with Jamar for over seven hours to convince him to turn the power back on. 
The negotiators tried a new tactic. They took video of the released children playing in the group home and sent it to the compound. The Branch Davidians responded with tapes of their own, introducing themselves and their children, saying how much they loved David, and laughing about the idea that they were being brainwashed or were being held against their will. The recordings from both the Branch Davidians and the FBI were performative attempts at normalcy in a wild and precarious situation. The negotiation team was trying to follow their game plan, establish a friendly and safe world outside the compound that the Branch Davidians would be willing to re-enter. But Koresh's hold on his followers was strong. When the parents inside the compound saw their children playing, they found ways to see Babylon as David did. Some of them had only sent their children away at David's behest. So a new sense of helplessness and a completely different kind of cognitive dissonance formed in their minds. If they told themselves that they had sent their children away for their own safety, did that make Babylon safe? During this time, the House of David often huddled together, telling themselves that this was their little season to wait. Between one great attack and another, as it was told in the book of Revelation. Worse was to come, but they would face it together. Many of them detested the FBI. Others decided to forgive them, knowing they all had their part to play in this journey to the next life, the better life, the final life. But Kathy Schroeder, Michael Schroeder's widow, could not forget her son, Brian. She watched the video the FBI had sent from the group home over and over, as if somehow he would look less forlorn, less alone if she played it again. On March 11th, Kathy called the negotiators to rail about Brian's clear unhappiness. On Nestner's recommendation, negotiator John Dolan said, You know, Kathy, I think what Brian really needs now is a hug from his mommy. Kathy agreed to leave Mount Carmel the next day. Kathy was reunited with Brian on the morning of March 12th. The negotiators captured the reunion on tape and sent it into the compound with more milk, hoping to continue the tape exchange. Kathy called to tell the Branch Davidians that the children were being well taken care of. Steve Schneider seemed stunned. Slowly and carefully, the negotiators were helping the group see that there was a world outside of David Koresh. But then Schneider began to make demands. Demands for media access, contact with attorneys, copies of various reports and interviews that pertain to the cult. At 6 p.m. that same day, 19-year-old Oliver Giarafash left the compound. Both he and Kathy Schroeder had been subjected to exit interviews from Koresh. He reminded them that they were surrendering to the forces of evil before ultimately letting them go. Forcing them to stay would have fractured the reality he was trying to build for his remaining followers. He didn't have to make threats. The book of Revelation told them what would happen if you strayed. Nessner hoped that the exit of Kathy and Oliver would be a tipping point as two adult Branch Davidians left the fold of their own accord. If they peeled enough followers off, they thought, Koresh himself might be forced to give up in order to maintain an appearance of still being in control of the situation. Then Steve Schneider called the negotiators to tell them that their power had been cut again without warning. The HRT also installed high-powered lights that prevented the Branch Davidians from seeing activity outside their compound at night. 
Nessner objected, but Rogers and Jamar had no regrets. If the negotiators didn't get results, the HRT would. Nessner, Sage, and the rest of the team knew what the HRT results looked like, and they wanted to avoid them at any cost. On March 15th, Jamar allowed armed combat engineering vehicles, or CEVs, to clear away trash piles the HRT claimed could act as cover for the Branch Davidians in a firefight. The CEVs repeatedly severed the phone lines the FBI had set up, which meant that a backup PA system had to be set up using yet another armored vehicle. All of this activity on the compound drove Koresh nuts, and it wounded any rapport that had been set up between the Davidians and the negotiations team. On March 16th, FBI special agent in charge Dick Schwein arrived in Waco. He suggested that they use an old U.S. Army tactic of blasting loud noises at the group at night, including the sounds of dying rabbits and Nancy Sinatra's These Boots Are Made For Walking. The negotiators definitely weren't happy with these tactics and voiced their objections. But on March 19th, two more adults, Brad Branch and Kevin Whitecliffe, left the compound, followed by seven more adults two days later. Nessner desperately hoped that this would be the flow they'd been looking for, the beginnings of a mass desertion of Koresh. But while the harsh tactics had shaken some of the Branch Davidians' faith, Koresh and Schneider hardened. Schneider warned, you may have to come in and take his carcass out of here. That night, Nessner was told he would need to step down. He was already a week over the standard rotation for an FBI hostage negotiator, but he also suspected that Jamar didn't like the pushback he was receiving from Nessner and his unit. His anxiety spiked when he was told that he would be replaced by Clint Van Zant, a born-again Christian who had been on the team that had successfully convinced the Covenant, the sword and the arm of the Lord, to stand down in Arkansas. Nessner strongly recommended that Van Zant refrain from getting bogged down in theology with Koresh, but Van Zant did it anyway. This would begin a period of theological debate during which Koresh, Van Zant, and other religious experts would argue over the prophecies in the book of Revelation and try to sway one another's belief. It was ultimately a waste of time. As these theological debates deepened, Dr. Perry sent another memo on March 26th. He said, The children were instructed to refer to Koresh as their father and to their natural parents as dogs. Children who were not fathered or adopted by Koresh were called bastards. Even more troubling was the children's tendency to refer to their parents as if they were already dead. Dr. Perry believed that Koresh was stalling for a final battle he'd been prepping his followers for. Attorneys Dick DeGarren and Jack Zimmerman were allowed in to speak to the Branch Davidians on April 1st, hoping to convince Koresh that he had a valid legal defense against any charges brought against him. They advised the Branch Davidians to stop talking to law enforcement, but the silence didn't last. DeGarren and Zimmerman told the FBI that their clients would leave Mount Carmel after Passover. But Koresh's Passover didn't directly correspond with the Jewish High Holy Days. On April 6th, Schneider called the FBI to tell them that Passover would start at sundown and last until April 13th. During this time, the Branch Davidians would repeatedly attempt to go outside the compound as part of religious practice, 
but the agents at the perimeter often threw flashbang grenades that sent them scrambling back indoors. April 14th arrived, and the FBI held out a small hope that Koresh would make good on his word. But instead, he made a pronouncement. He had finally been given permission by God to write down his interpretation of the seven seals. When this work was done and handed over to the theologians, he said, I will come out, and then you can do your thing with this beast. He estimated that the writing process would take about two weeks. He excitedly called the negotiators to preach to them for over five hours. The siege was costing the FBI approximately $128,000 a day, and conversations became more heated in Washington when the flow both Nestor and President Clinton had been expecting petered out. Rumblings about a last resort began. Those rumblings met resistance from new Attorney General Janet Reno, who, like the FBI, had inherited this mess. Each time the FBI proposed a military intervention, she asked them why they couldn't wait. Lives had been lost already, and there were innocent children inside the building. To her, and to President Clinton, it was too great a risk to ignite a violent confrontation. But the FBI commanders had a piece of information that would change her mind. Kathy Schroeder had told agents that when she'd gone to say goodbye to David, he'd been sitting in bed with a young girl. Mark Bro had told the Waco Tribune Herald that these kinds of sleepovers fell into the Old Testament concept of Abishag, where an elderly King David took young maidens to bed with him to keep him warm. It was classic grooming behavior, getting the child used to the idea of being close to an adult man before pushing her boundaries further. As a state attorney for Dade County, Florida, Reno had made a name on her tough prosecution of suspected child molesters, and the idea that Koresh was still abusing children held significant weight with her. Finally, she relented. And so the tear gas plan, the plan the HRT had been working on since February 28th, was set into motion. Jeff Jamar asked Byron Sage to speak over the PA system as the armored vehicles closed in to slowly pump in the tear gas. At 5.59 a.m. on April 19, 1993, Sage put in a call to Steve Schneider, the man he'd been speaking with almost daily for nearly two months, telling him that the FBI was about to insert non-lethal tear gas into the compound. Schneider hung up abruptly and rushed to tell the other Branch Davidians to put on their gas masks. Sage attempted to call the compound again, but one of the CEVs had unintentionally severed the phone line. And so he took to the PA system and in a calm, almost nurturing voice, began to tell David Koresh and the Branch Davidians that they needed to leave the building and give themselves up. He warned them about the tear gas that was coming, assuring them that it was non-lethal, and he urged them to come out in order to breathe clean air. The plan had been to breach Mount Carmel's walls slowly and gradually insert the gas over the course of two days. But at 6.05 a.m., an FBI sniper reported that he saw gunfire coming from the compound. Richard Rogers' team switched to their new rules of engagement. Use of appropriate deadly force was authorized, and the tear gas plan was escalated. Armored vehicles accelerated towards the compound to deliver more gas. The code word for this change in tactics was compromise. 
no one came out of the compound as the CEVs made wider and wider holes in the walls of Mount Carmel. The haphazard construction of the complex began to show as the building folded in on itself. The holes were wide enough that the agents could see into the interior of the compound. What happened next is ultimately unclear and spawned a thousand conspiracy theories. The surveillance devices the FBI had hidden inside the milk packaging picked up voices saying, did he pour it yet? In the hallway, yes. David said pour it, right? Shortly after the tear gas first entered the building at 6.09 a.m. At 12.07 p.m., Sage was told that one of the FBI observers had seen someone light a fire in the southwest corner of the building. Sage's orders became pleas as he said, Lead your people out, David. Be a messiah, not a destroyer. Another fire started in the dining room area. Another at the rear of the Mount Carmel Chapel. The 20 to 30 mile per hour winds carried the flames higher and faster. And less than 20 minutes later, the inferno had engulfed the compound. Desperate, Sage began yelling into the bullhorn. David, you have had your 15 minutes of fame. Koresh is finished. He is no longer the Messiah. The four-story tower that held the bedroom of David Koresh collapsed in what felt like hellish slow motion. A mushroom cloud of inky smoke and flame launched into the sky before the blaze cascaded over itself and onto the ground, still burning. Nine adults staggered out of the smoke, but no children were with them. Ruth Riddle had leapt from the second floor roof after the stairs had been destroyed by the CEVs as they'd injected the tear gas. She ran towards the front of the burning building, about to go back inside. Special Agent James McGee left his secure vehicle to pull her back. She fought him the whole way. When they reached safety, he asked her where the children were. She wouldn't answer. I'm seeing numerous flames coming out of a lower floor window of the Branch Davidian compound. A huge amount of smoke billowing into the air, being quickly taken away from the building by strong winds blowing across the central Texas plain. The flames are jumping up into a second story area out the windows. Don't know yet what caused this, but there is fire at the Branch Davidian compound. Did a matter, I, I, I would say two to three minutes, the, the entire uh, compound was engulfed in flames. Uh, it was it was a horrifying sight. Uh, the, the smoke was was jet black, and now there is still smoke coming, but it's smoldering. Uh, it's it, it's very white. It's very faint. And the only thing standing, the flagpole, and the water tower, the watchtower, which is now just uh, just charred and uh, has halfway collapsed. The hostage rescue team rushed towards the bunker Koresh had built, hoping he had told his followers to take shelter while their home went up in flames. At least 32 Branch Davidians were in the bunker, including many of Koresh's children and their mothers. But the space had also been used as storage for hundreds of thousands of rounds of ammunition. The flames moved too quickly for the HRT. They had to pull back. When the bunker was later excavated by rescue workers, the corpses were so melted together that they were unable to be separated at the scene. 
the whole mass was sent to the medical examiner's office, and it would take weeks to even begin the process of identifying remains. Investigators later recovered over 390,000 rounds of ammunition inside the compound. Waco fireman Charlie Wilson recounted that as he moved through the charred skeleton of Mount Carmel, he found a set of nine corpses with bullet holes in their heads. And then there, right in front, Wilson found a guy sitting in a folding chair, picked up like he was holding an automatic rifle in his hands, dead. Everything was burnt off of him. Everything was gone. But he was just sitting there, just holding that weapon. FBI negotiator Byron Sage told Texas Monthly in 2018 that turning off the PA system outside Mount Carmel after the compound had been consumed by flame was, quote, one of those points in your life that you'll never, ever forget. By turning that switch off, it was like I had 51 other guys that were looking over my shoulder watching me say, we failed. 76 Branch Davidians perished that day. 22 of them were under the age of 13. David Koresh's body was found beside his trusted lieutenant, Steve Schneider. Koresh was shot in the forehead, and Steve Schneider died of an apparently self-inflicted bullet wound to the mouth. The news of that hit Byron Sage particularly hard. A few weeks prior, a member of his team had asked Schneider if he was going to commit suicide. Steve had said, oh, of course not. If I did, I'd be lost eternally. Perhaps David told his friend that he could kill himself after he killed his Messiah. Perhaps he told him he needed to burn in order to be saved. Perhaps he left it up to Steve. The story of Mount Carmel faded from the national media in time, but the radical right wing that had fixated on Ruby Ridge now fixated on Waco, which they viewed as a mass murder carried out by the U.S. government. Some contended that the armored vehicles had used flamethrowers to set Mount Carmel alight and accuse FBI snipers of shooting Branch Davidians as they attempted to flee the building. Some even alleged that three of the ATF agents that had been killed in the failed raid had been murdered by their comrades as part of a cover-up because they had served on President Clinton's security detail. These were fringe ideas, and most Americans paid them no attention. Then, on April 19, 1995, exactly two years after the Waco fire, a gun rights activist named Timothy McVeigh set off a truck bomb in front of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. The blast destroyed buildings and cars in a 16-block radius, and killed 167 people, including 19 children. It was the deadliest incident of domestic terrorism in U.S. history. McVeigh was obsessed with the supposed evils of the ATF and had learned to make explosives while watching footage of the Waco siege on TV. Waco remains a rallying cry for the strange bedfellows of gun rights advocates and anti-militarization activists a simultaneous example of the dangers of both government overreach and gun culture. In the wake of this national tragedy, a series of panels and congressional hearings would try to dissect the mistakes made by the ATF and FBI to prevent another Waco from ever happening again. 
But perhaps the greatest tactical error was underestimating the faith of those who believed in Koresh. He had kept his promise to them. Babylon had met them at their door, and they had gone out in a fiery blaze. We can only hope that he kept his final promise, that in the next life, his followers find something better than the end they met on earth. Thanks again for tuning in to Hostage. We will be back Thursday with a new episode. And thanks again to Greg and Vanessa for joining us. Thanks for having us. If you enjoyed these episodes, you can find episodes of Cults on Spotify or anywhere you listen to Hostage. There are new episodes of both shows every week. And if you enjoy either show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. In the meantime, don't take your freedom for granted. Hostage and Cults were created by Max Cutler, are a production of Cutler Media, and are part of the ParCast Network. They are produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode is written by Lil DeRitter and Jennifer Rache and stars Irma Blanco, Carter Roy, Greg Polson, and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>